0: Hello, everyone. Welcome back to our podcast. It's great that you have joined us for another discussion. And uh, for the first time in a few episodes, we're all here as well. My name's Cameron, and I'm looking forward to this, uh, our next discussion on looking at what the proverbs have to say about rest.
1: Yeah,
2: g'day. Ken it's Stanton here, and uh, enjoying the discussion to
1: be. And this is Luke, and my back is killing me. <laughs> <laughs>
3: And I'm Lachlan, and I have recently returned from a holiday in Tasmania where I enjoyed the company of both Ken and Cam, and I'm doubly glad to have had that opportunity because it's the door is now shut uh, to that state from New South Wales for the time being, so um, back at home into the regular routine.
0: Great to catch up with you, Lachlan. Yeah. It's really fabulous. Let's jump into uh, one of the proverbs that we've sort of skirted around, we've mentioned once or twice, and... It, uh, if this is directly about rest, and so it very much belongs in this discussion. It's in Proverbs chapter 6, and I am going to start reading from verse 6. Go to the ant, you sluggard. Consider its ways and be wise. It has no commander, no overseer or ruler, yet it stores its provisions in summer and gathers its food at harvest.
2: How long will you lie there, you
1: sluggard? When will you get up from your sleep? a little sleep a little slumber a little folding of the hands to sleep
3: then poverty will pounce on you like a bandit scarcity will attack you like an armed robber <laughs>
0: good
2: uh, well the protestant this, work ethic th- th- loud exactly and
3: clear. <laughs> exactly and interestingly it's it's thoroughly connected to the title of this week's lesson the cost of rest um in the seventh adventist Bible study guide. the The cost of rest here is very clearly uh, poverty and yep. and scarcity.
2: Disaster.
0: Now, I I really like the imagery. I like the the idea of someone some sluggard sitting and looking at an ant's nest. I think that's a a nice nice picture. Yes, and although um, not
1: scientifically accurate, These ants actually do have a queen.
0: A little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. There's, and then you get pounced on. Yeah,
3: I think that the little little extra sleep and little more slumber... I think that that passage in verse 10 has... It's almost like a lullaby. To me, It it is soothing me down to a restful, peaceful, sleeping state. There's something about the structure of the wording. It's poetic in that sense, because it really lulls me into exactly what it's describing. And then... When I well, get pounced on in verse 11, I really feel it. I have to admit, I hold
1: a very strong grudge against that particular verse. <laughs> because it's been used probably for, for centuries at least to, to insist that getting up early in the morning is the only way to be productive and moral. <laughs> and as somebody who knows themselves to be their most productive and active at about 8pm, I find it deeply offensive. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Luke, I I have the problem if someone asks me are you an owl or a fowl do you prefer to get up early or up late and my honest answer is I'd sleep 11 hours every night if I was allowed to put my head on the pillow mm. um, I, I function best briefly at about 11 o'clock in the morning <laughs> and,
1: <laughs> and everything before and after is just a, a, d- a downhill
0: a, yeah it's either an uphill in the morning or a downhill Late in the evening. Now, I'm about to quote an idea from a book that I've not read. So, this is very dangerous, but look, I think you may have read it. Have you read Guns, Germs and Steel? Ah.
3: Oh, I've read that. I have read parts of it.
0: Now, um, because he talked, it's a book studying um, the fates of human societies. And uh, I've heard people talk of it. So, uh, let me pose a question and see if I'm remembering this correctly, as it having come from that book. Um, as I remember it being spoken about. Uh, under colonial um, times, when when India was a, a British colony, there was a huge natural resource in India and there was a huge workforce in in India and there was a huge market for goods in India. So why is it that England was... So successful in asserting itself as a centre of manufacturing influence that cotton was grown in India and shipped to England and made into cloth so that it could be made into clothes so that it could be sent back to India to be sold.
2: You've got a stumped, Cam. Yes. Stunned silence.
1: We want the answer. Well, I haven't read the book, so I don't know the answer. <laughs> I, well, uh, now I put myself on the spot because I have read the book, but it was a long time ago. Um, I'm, uh,
0: what, the, what I'm not sure about is whether I'm remembering the right book. Um, <laughs> I, I think I think that one of the answers is that um, England had, had now for many centuries been operating under the Protestant work ethic and the workforce in England was just more reliable
1: i think that's that's a big part of it if i'm remembering correctly another another big thing was that england was the first country in the world to industrialize and it mm. had all of the all of the required infrastructure for large scale reliable manufacturing which didn't exist in other places um yeah so you had the workforce and you also had all of the infrastructure because you can't just build a factory anywhere the factory needs to have power the power has to come from somewhere else if it's steam powered then you need to have the coal the coal has to come from coal mine there has to be logistics that can reliably transport it so you get enough all the time so you know a clothes factory doesn't just exist in isolation. Mm. It is part of a system. And England was the first country in the world to have a system that really allowed for what we think of today as manufacturing. So they got a huge head start on everyone else. Um, that they kept for a long time. This is maybe off, off the point you were making, but that's what I remember. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Well, it's it speaks to the same point in the sense that what constitutes work and what's an appropriate work ethic is really culturally. It's um, it's very uh, it's cultural and technologically in, informed and all sorts of other things. Um, so
3: much so, uh, Cam. Just while you were while you were referring to that, I, I wanted to join in this um, lucky dip. Bing, uh, book reference bingo tonight because oh, I have good, a book that I want to refer well. to, but I can't even find the title of the book, let alone the author. But it—I
2: <laughs> once read this book, and
1: it said, <laughs> yeah. "Okay, I'm not that bad." Can though. I
3: assure you that I'm not making this up? It, it is a book, and it no, exists. Don't
1: believe you. Verifiable evidence, please. One,
3: one of the my, one of the problems is that there are a number of books that I've read along this vein. Uh, one of the interest areas of mine is how society will restructure or will be forced to restructure how our economy will be forced to restructure as we go through a progression where more and more goods have zero cost of reproduction so the the canonical example of this would be something like wikipedia Um, if one person reads wikipedia or if a million people read wikipedia the cost of duplication is very 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 low it's not zero but it's so low that it's effectively zero and that breaks the standard models of capitalist economics when it comes to trying to work out the value of, of goods or even of services. And okay, Wikipedia is a bit of an extreme example, but more and more so, the... Value inherent in objects, in economic objects, is information-based value. Uh, Think about the transition, for example, that's currently underway from internal combustion cars to electric cars. With an electric car, the hardware is very simple. It's not zero cost of reproduction, but it's very simple. The advanced stuff that companies work to protect, the value that sets them apart from their competitors, is information It's got to do with the way they program their battery management systems and their motor accelerator algorithms for maximum efficiency and so on. And that knowledge is readily replicable at very low cost. And in fact, Karl Marx wrote about this in an essay, obviously a long time ago, pondering on the way that that would fundamentally alter economics. So the book that I would like to refer to makes a concerted sustained argument that the protestant work ethic is destructive mm. it is hindering the necessary and important transformations that society needs to needs to take place so for example one mechanism that has been proposed in a world where work where effort is decoupled from direct um uh productivity or direct measurable uh, productive yield, one mechanism that has been explored is the universal basic income. But the Protestant work ethic motivates people to argue vehemently against such a thing because they cannot countenance the idea of giving someone money who may not be working.
1: So this is really, really interesting that you've brought this up, Locke, because you say that we are now at a point looking back on the industrial revolution and the industrial world from a potentially post-industrial world and saying that protestant work ethic isn't working for us anymore we sort of, we need to consider rethinking the way we think about it i have a book to share that takes a perspective from a very long time ago that also you has an what opinion on i do know what it is <laughs> I've even found it on my phone so I can show it to you all. Ah, I'm I'm, I haven't finished it yet, but I'm ha- I've, I've referred to it before. I, I've recommended it to you. So it's Sand Talk by Tyson young Um And I've got, I've got this quote uh, from him. Um, it's a really, really thought-provoking book. He says, I am often told that I should be grateful for the progress that Western civilization has brought to these shores. I am not. This life of work or die is not an improvement on pre-invasion living, which involved only a few hours of work a day for shelter and sustenance, performing tasks that people do now for leisure activities on their yearly holidays, fishing, collecting plants, hunting, camping, and so forth. The rest of the day was for fun, strengthening relationships, ritual and ceremony, cultural expression, intellectual pursuits, and the expert crafting of exceptional objects. I know this is true because I have lived like this even in this era when the land is only a pale shadow of the abundance that once was. Mm. Mm. Uh,
2: can I can I say, uh, add to that, um, I have the pleasure of having some friends from Kenya uh, attending our church now. And I asked them yesterday, when they were around uh, sharing a meal with us, wh- what is one of the things that you miss culturally? Um, uh from your life in Kenya compared to here in Australia. And it was very obvious and very clear and straight up. Uh, And it was the uh, sense of community based around geography. So one of the things that they said was, um, we would know all of our neighbours within a radius of 30 kilometres. And uh, if we went away on holidays, we wouldn't even ask our neighbours would come and look after our animals and look after the house while we were away. And then, of course, if they went away, we would do the same thing for them. Um, It's inconceivable that you would move somewhere and not have the neighbour come and knock on the door and and say, hi, I'm (laughs) Joe, and um, introduce themselves, and that you would develop a relationship where you would see and speak to each other on a daily basis. Um, uh, So... uh, that sort of community is something that uh, uh I think we lose with this work ethic it's that time for uh connection and building relationships that the author of Sandtalk uh spoke mm. about and, and and we lose that with productivity um that That's one thing I wanted to go back Lachlan to something that you were saying though because you were referring to how the information is what's of value mm. now. And, and I, I wonder whether or not that proposition might now even be challenged. Um, I think it is. Because, um, and Wikipedia, the example that you gave, is the classic, uh, uh, you know, uh, counterfactual to that proposition, um, because the information is there, readily available, um, uh, gen- generally reasonably accurate, uh, and... Uh, the question that i then have is what does work look like and what is it that creates value in a post information age not just a post industrial mechanized uh, age but a post information age i mean i can find out things that that you know isaac newton had no idea about uh within milliseconds on my iPhone. Um...
0: Well, I can tell you, Ken, that um, you can find out about it, but you won't understand it as well as Newton did.
2: What are you saying? Um... (laughs) What I'm saying is that understanding
0: things, I'm saying that understanding things takes a lot of time and effort. And this is I had an interesting conversation with some of my students who Mm. were incredulous when when myself and another staff member advocated for removing their laptops from them so that they could do better research. Mm. They said, where would we get the information? We said, well research is not about collecting and assimilating information to one source. I think I mentioned this on a previous podcast. Mm. It's about processing information. But of course, Ken, the greats of the great learners were drawn almost exclusively from people, either noblemen or clergy, who, who did not need it to be useful. Mm. <clears throat> they already had an income. Yep. Yes, They were doing and, it just for the thing itself.
3: Now, and dare mm. I say, that is still true today. Uh, there are many university students in Australia today. I see some of them myself in my work who are desperate to get a university degree because of the job os- job prospects that come with it but are constrained by the reality that they have to work a considerable number of hours every week just mm. to be able to cover living expenses, they are not at liberty to engage with their studies to the extent that they, or, or their lecturers, let's be fair, would actually really like. And the ones that can excel are are invariably still the ones for whom um, living comes just a little bit easier by circumstance of, of life. And probably are closer to the sluggard, right? I mean, huh. realistically, the, the reason why Isaac Newton and Galileo and some of those big names could do what they did is, is precisely because they, they didn't have to be productive preparing bread in summer and gathering food in harvest. No. But they, could, they could afford that... a, little, a little rest, a little folding oh, of the, hand of the hands. Yeah. <laughs>
0: well, who well, was it? Well, wasn't look, it? They, were, Here you go, Cam. they were sufficiently curious mm. that they looked at the ants of their own accord, and the stars, and the rivers, and everything. Oh. So they didn't need to be admonished to look at the ants because mm, they were at doing things. Cam,
1: um, I was going to say, wasn't it? Wasn't it Albert Einstein? It might not be, and this might be apocryphal anyway. But um, they would hold their watch in their hand to power nap and when it fell from their hand it would make a noise that hit the floor and woke them up and that was the signal to to <laughs> contemplate the problem again and this was this was a a, a thinking technique that they had mm.
0: do you do you know that um scientists who win nobel prizes are much more likely than other scientists to have very time consuming hobbies yeah and and scientists in general are more likely to have time-consuming hobbies than general population. Well, who was it? So, um,
1: there's a very famous story of that. Um, it was oh. the father
0: of um, computer science, the guy, Shannon, was it? Something rather, he, he, he envisaged things like um, data compression algorithms in the 1930s. I'm thinking of a and different he one. Was
1: a, you do that one, then he will do this one.
0: This guy was famously scatterbrained. He would he would spend weeks doing nothing other than learn to juggle knives while riding a unicycle or something, just for the fun of it. And he'd he'd wander around the department, poking his nose into this and that. And then he something would strike his fancy, and he'd be trying to make some little mechanical automaton to accomplish some task. And he he and another mathematician built the first wearable computer, <coughs> which was like um build out of valves and crazy, you know, transistor hand-soldered things with which they had a simple timing circuit that they could use to provide a very coarse estimation of where the ball would land in roulette. And they went and cleaned out a casino yep. at huge personal risk. And after they'd done it once, they never did it again because they'd proved they could do it and that was enough. And they moved on to something else. <laughs> this... and. And and this guy was famously scatterbrained and and I was listening to a podcast where someone was researching it and he said the point of the podcast was going to be think of how much more this person could have accomplished if they were more focused. He said, but when he looked into the science of it, um, when you're engaged in a creative task, having downtime is really important for the brain. And maybe the question is not how much more could this person have accomplished. I ought to look up his name. I'll look it up now. Um, Claude Shannon is the one Ooh. I'm thinking of. Uh, maybe the question is not how much more he could have accomplished had he been more focused. Maybe the question is how much less he would have accomplished if he had been more focused. Well,
3: this is in the interest of of giving actual information to all of our vague references this episode, I have found the title of the book I referred to. It's called Post-Capitalism, which is, of course, a very obvious title for what I was describing. Um, author Paul Mason. I really enjoyed reading it. Um yeah. On that, what you were just saying, Cam, one of the British scientists um, of the 20th century famously said that all of his best and most productive ideas, um, he referred to the three B's. These ideas came in the bed, the bath or the bus. And, <laughs> and it, it really is, it really is measurably true. You, you referenced that the, the story you told, the, the storyteller, the podcaster had gone and looked into some of the research. It is genuinely true. And creative problem-solving tasks are enhanced uh, by, by activities that distract or, or steer the attention. I often reflect, Cam, how different your PhD work was from mine. Mine was experimental physics in a lab, screwing things together hour after hour after hour to get them aligned. Yours was in mathematics, which required going for regular daily walks.
0: Look, I've got a loop around Newcastle Uni I can recommend to you <laughs> uh, that begins and ends in the, in the Maths building. And that I did, I'd like to know how many times I did that loop. And a lot of the times was I used to lie underneath my desk and write with a whiteboard mar- marker. It, it's because if I'm not somewhere between the hours of 11 o'clock and eleven twenty, I'm, I'm <laughs> a sub subpar operational sort of energy level. So I was lying on the floor and right on the underside of the desk and doodle and try and think of ideas. And when they didn't come, I got so frustrated. I used to go out and do walks and think about aeroplanes.
3: Mm. Mm. But here's the interesting thing. In in reference to the proverb that we read and the idea of the Protestant work ethic being admonished by the ants who are ceaselessly uh, energetic. Um, I I honestly think that the illustration of the ants is a very good motivator for the Industrial Revolution factory production model. And, and when we've got, you know, we live in a world increasingly where those sorts of repetitive menial tasks are taken over by robots. They're automated away. When you live in, a, in an economy and a world where the sorts of tasks that are allocated to humans are the ones that leverage the human capacity for creative lateral problem solving then I'm not entirely sure that the ants are the model that we should go for. I think it should be consider thou the cheetah or the tiger that lies pondering for many hours so that it can creatively catch the prey that it requires for survival.
0: Well, the question is Locke whether maybe some people are like ants and some of them are like tigers. Mm. So, um, must we all take instruction from the same animal? You, you could consider the eagle, couldn't you? That has to, because of the sort of work that it does, has to very carefully monitor its body weight. And after it's after it's just fed, that the bird will sit on a branch, digesting. Not not because it's too lazy to go out and look for more food. It has no need of it, and it's actually like physically harder to fly with a full tummy because you weigh so much more. Yeah. Um. And and you, birds of prey monitor their weight very carefully.
2: That's true of humans too, because the designated aviation medical examiners monitor your weight very carefully. <laughs> <laughs> and their blood pressure. And they go, if you get any heavier, you might have problems.
3: So I think this is a really interesting thought, though. Uh, we, in, at the start of this uh, season of this podcast, looking at the theme of rest... And, and turning to the proverbs we noted that the idea of rest and laziness or, or rest in this case and the sluggard uh we're, we're going to come up and we're going to often seem to be the same I think what we're exploring here is is that they may look really similar and in fact there could be, really important times to to experience a little folding of the hands to rest and you know am i am i i feel a a genuine critique to some extent of this of this proverb about you know after just a little rest poverty will come upon you like a robber um (laughs) i i also wondered to myself whether we're whether we're reading it right, you know, I, I certainly mm. hear, Luke, your concern here that this has been used for at, at least decades and perhaps centuries to, to come down pretty hard on anyone wanting to sleep in in the morning or, or any other form of, of sluggardly behavior. But mm. is that what the ancient Hebrew author is thinking?
2: I don't know, but it's not just being used in that way to say, don't sleep. Mm. It's also being used to justify work, oppression. Work
1: constantly. Um, oh, it's also yeah. being used.
2: And, and, and Locke, I want to challenge one of the things that you say. I don't have the statistics about this, but I wonder. Um, we talk about the degree of automation that we have in our world today. I accept that we are capable of high degrees of automation and robotic manufacture. I would also be very interested to know whether or not many of the robots that you speak about are, in fact, oppressed human beings in under de- in you know third world countries or whatever the appropriate language is now used to describe uh, nations, developing. Uh, de- developing nations. I. I, I I wonder whether we're much less automated than we were, and we still rely very heavily on underpaid human workforce.
3: So I I I see what you're saying, Ken. I, t- I totally agree. Yes, I concede um, absolutely that we our the way we live our lives is pretty entwined with that sort of oppression. And I hear very clearly what you're saying, which is the. The, the readiness with which this kind of Bible verse could be applied in such situations.
2: We're providing these people with work. Yeah. It's good for yeah. them.
0: I've got a I've got a few comments on that. Um, just before I do, I thought I'd bring up a list. I did a quick Google search for a list of animals that could have been referred to. There's some really good ones here. <laughs> um, <clears throat> there's the pygmy blue tongue lizard. It's <laughs> uh, thought to be extinct. <laughs> Uh, they don't actively catch their prey. Instead, they lay in the burrow with their head pointing towards the entrance and wait for something to fall in. <laughs> that's, <laughs> oh, that's fantastic! And then the, but it works for the pygmy blue tug lizard. Yeah, the cuckoo, of course. Imagine if he'd referred to the cuckoo as a mm. as a as a role model. Um, so, I think the natural world's a bit ambivalent on this one. Um, the in terms of in terms of we, you know, um, providing these people with work. As C.S. Lewis wrote an essay, so people with the bingo cards can tick off the C.S. Lewis reference. It's an essay called Good Work and Good Works. And frustratingly, I can't find the book that I have that essay in in front of me. When I did a Google search, all I could find was a commentary on the essay. And reading a commentary on the essay is ridiculous. Um Next, there'll be summaries of the commentaries of the essay, and I don't know how many steps. And then there'll, be people, but, <laughs> and then there'll be people talking about it on
2: podcasts.
0: Then there'll be people talking about on podcasts. But this is this is the gist of the essay. He's, he talks about good work and about good works. Um, Lewis begins the essay uh, with the discussion of the uh, wedding at Cana. Uh, Christ did a good work by providing wine to all at the wedding. But more than that, it was also good work. The wine was very good mm. wine. Lewis says, the great mass of men in a, in, uh, a fully industrialised society are the victims of a situation which almost excludes the idea of good work from the outset. Mm. Building something to be obsolescent has become an economic necessity. Work nowadays must not be good. Uh, you know, in the past... In, you know, in feudal times or village-based or agrarian societies, what you built had to be good because your survival depended on it. But now, now people don't build things because they're useful. We have to buy things so that people have work. Mm. Mm.
1: Mm. It, it, I mean, it reminds me of this quote again. The rest of the day was for fun, strengthening relationships, ritual and ceremony, cultural expression, intellectual pursuits, and the expert crafting of exceptional objects. That sounds great to me, but I can't afford to do it.
0: There's one or two things I resent very strongly about living in the internet age. Um, One of them is that, um, you know, I enjoy communicating maths and science. If I want to put together a video for my students or a little animation, and I have some small ability in coding and access to some software packages that I can do these things on. If I want to explain to someone how the derivative works or a quirky application of quadratics in chaos theory or something like that um, it is almost invariably the case that it is not worth my time doing it myself because a better version lives somewhere on the internet uploaded to youtube by someone who's one of the few and there's a there's a handful of them uh, very good mathematics and science communicators who have used the platform of youtube to access, let's face it, what is a niche audience? But when you multiply that niche audience by 8 billion humans on the planet, it's a huge following, and they're earning a full-time income doing this. I can't compete. And that irritates me. Um, it irritates me a lot uh, that there's that much less opening. It's a bit like the transition after the radio was invented away from local musicians mm-hmm. towards sort of mega pop groups. Um so you
1: yeah, you're absolutely right Cam. what the internet does this sort of single environment single marketplace is it creates an environment where 90% of the attention goes to 10% of the content
0: and everything I'm else I'm sure it's more like oh, yeah 99
1: it's to more 1 like 99 yeah. yeah yeah you know and ev- everything else you know scrabbles for that 1% Yeah um, because yeah. when something goes viral, uh, which I, you know, if there's one small silver lining to come out of the world's current state, it may be that that term is used with less positive connotations. Cause I never liked it. <laughs> uh, yeah. It would be coronavirus. Um, <clears throat> but Cam, I would, I would say that, yeah, what, what the modern world has done to some extent it's it it, it's killed off doing, it's killed off being bad at things as an adult because the expert, everywhere around you you see an adult being good at, some, at, at the thing so learning yeah. new things as an adult becomes more embarrassing and less acceptable um, and it kills off just doing something as well as you can for the joy of doing it because there's so many, you could just watch someone else do it better Mm. um yeah. it makes that ch- it doesn't make it impossible but i absolutely agree with you it makes it much harder because yeah. why should i the flip I-
0: side is i mean the flip side is there's two sides to this isn't there But uh, the honest truth is uh i enjoy woodwork it is so much cheaper to watch and you get real pleasure from it A vicarious pleasure watching someone who's very good do something incredible on youtube with some really innovative concept, executed well, with good quality tools, done right. And you can watch the video at the end of it, you can say, oh, that was just so good. That was really clever. It's a genuine Mm. and I think quite healthy pleasure in in seeing that. It's just so much cheaper to do that than to go and actually buy Mm. a lathe and a set of chisels and 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 everything else. But the flip side is that now that I have bought a lathe, I do get lots of useful ideas of things to try. Mm. I was going to say, Cam,
2: I, I... if I remember rightly, that pleasure didn't stop you going
0: out and getting the lathe. <laughs> yeah. But no, no, I mean the fascinating I thing. I do sometimes? I do sometimes lie in bed watching a video and then come to myself and realise, just hang, on, I've just I've just wasted an hour mm. when I actually have the thing in real life in my garage. Yeah. that I haven't used for yeah, me. yeah. Look, I yeah, I, I think the
2: same thing. No, but I I would like
3: to speak in defence of that. We we think that's really normal in some arenas of life so for example there are a lot of people who have a piano in their house and who can play music but they still pay excessive money to go to a concert hall to hear the piano being played really well Mm. what i'm commenting on is that there are things which have always been performance activities and what things like youtube have done uh, has turned almost any activity can now be enjoyed as a legitimate performance art whether it's wood turning or simultaneous equations or trigonometry yeah. or landing a private light aircraft at sydney international airport because air traffic is reduced because of covid travel restrictions all of these things yeah. might be valid performances as at least as much as the piano concerto yeah
0: mm. yeah so and i mean it it is it just really does raise the question more and more um what does work and rest look like <laughs> mm-hmm. um, in our society? That's that's really the, the the question, and it's it's really complicated. I I so, don't I don't feel I don't feel it is clear in here, today's day and age. If if I said to you, you must, for instance, with the Sabbath, dedicate one day a week to rest. It's not clear to me what activities would constitute rest.
1: Here mm. is a, another way to read this verse then this particularly verses verse seven six and seven you know that's sort of the the really well-known part of this problem so go to the ant, you slide consider its ways and be ways it has no commander no overseer or ruler yet it stores its provisions in summer and gathers food at harvest so of those three verses six seven and eight i would argue that the But, you know, based on the discussion that we've just had, the key verse here is actually seven. Hmm. Nobody, and again, scientific misunderstanding, ants do actually get direction, have queens, blah, blah, blah. But in this this three-verse section, the key point about this work that is being done is that it is not being directed by someone else. It Mm. is being done of their own initiative. Yeah, there's a self-motivation there. Mm. The self-motivation, the drive that's the key point. It's, it's not actually about listen to your boss, do what your boss says, work for your crust at mm. all. It's about do the, do the work, do the right things, put effort into things without needing someone to force you to.
0: And Maybe, maybe, you know, borrowing the idea from CS Lewis, um, maybe the idea is not so much that it's good to work, but that it is good to do good work.
1: Mm. Mm. Well, I, I I put it this I way you can't, do good. you can't force anybody to do a good job yeah. You can force people to do a You can force people to do a bad job because I, I Well, I know this about myself but I'd be shocked if anybody else was very different I cannot execute my abilities on anything if it's not something I'm really invested in, if I'm not enjoying it, if I'm not in the zone, if it doesn't catch my attention, if I begrudge what I'm doing, Mm. I cannot do it well, even if I try hard to. Yeah. And I think that's true. I think that's true of everybody. And I think that might be what these verses are about.
3: Yeah, I mean, here's a quick example. I've spent most of today working with my 10-year-old son on a school project that is building a model of a castle. And it's come up really well. And it, it's been a bit of a learning experience deliberately orchestrated by me uh, for my son because we, we set about trying to set our goal high and then, and then be motivated to actually do something, produce a good work, a good piece of work. And, and hopefully the experience has actually achieved that feeling of satisfaction that I was aiming for as a little bit of, a, of an illustration. But today, there were certainly times where uh, he was not in the zone. He didn't want to be building a model castle as a school project. What he wanted to be doing was down in the lounge room with cardboard boxes, building a fort with his sister for a game that they were playing. Now, it didn't escape me that the two tasks were incredibly connected. Both were building castles. But one of them had had far greater levels of intrinsic motivation. Mm. The the ability to play in said box fort, and the game that was imagined as the fort was being built, were were you know seriously uh, motivating. And the the asymmetry of effort of of motivation, you know, this is not this is not a criticism. This is an observation that what is true of ten year olds is invariably also true. Of all of us.
0: Well, there's there's an interesting point there. Let me. There's another C.S. Lewis, essay. and he said that one of the problems is that with lots of things you you do do them because of extrinsic motivation at first. The person who's mm. who's who's learning Greek doesn't appreciate the wonders of Homer and the Greek poets, and it's, he's busy with the with verbs and whatever else. Um. But it's only sort of later that you really discover it. Um, so, I mean, one of the functions of a good education is helping people discover that there is joy and in... mm. discover the internal mo- motivation for Ooh. for some of these things. Of course, of course, this gets backlocked, and and I'm sure, um, I'm sure, we, perhaps we've provoked our listeners into political outrage. Um, throughout this episode, but they're welcome to disagree with this, and they can email us at Home at gmail dot com. But getting back to the minimum wage, one of the things that's really obvious from the uh, free software community, things like Firefox and Linux and Apache web servers and Wikipedia's, and is that if people have free time, um, most people do not spend it idle. Mm. Mm. And if you if you do give people money, they don't sit there doing nothing. If you free up people's time, mm. they'll try and find something that they find is significant, which is comforting. I think that that seems to be humans would prefer to be doing something significant by and large than than being inactive.
3: Mm. So uh, I'm I'm intrigued as we're as we're coming towards the end of the episode, we set about trying to discuss a a. A topic which was titled the cost of rest, I think that we've, we've explored in some ways the cost of work, or at least the costs of busy work. I think we've, and you just expressed it pretty succinctly, Cam, the, the payoffs of rest or the benefits of rest, um, I don't think that we've super adequately addressed the cost of rest but I take comfort from the fact that when I read the Sabbath School pamphlet, I don't think it adequately addresses said topic either. So I'm not entirely sure that we need to exhaustively go into... Well, I mean, <laughs>
1: let's let's not uh, judge ourselves by the wrong standard, Locke.
0: <laughs> Locke, we, Locke, we certainly don't have to do it exhaustively. That wouldn't be in keeping with the topic on rest at all. No, no, exactly. <laughs> Touché. Well, I don't know. The... the Proverb seems to be discussing the cost of rest, and the cost of rest identified in the proverb is well, financial cost.
1: I would say that the proverb technically doesn't refer to rest at all.
0: It says, "Well, the hands rest; a little folding of the hands to rest." Mm. Well, that's an image. That's a sort of a, an image, I guess.
1: Yeah, I. I mean, you you put this proverb in the context of the the sabbath commandment it's obviously not referring to all rest, all types of rest rest in all contexts Mm. it it can't be because it doesn't supersede the commandments um, I don't think anybody would try and read the bible that way although, you know, protestant worth ethic, etc um so you know I, I think we we can take these verses um, and look at them with a little bit more flexibility.
3: Yeah I mean yeah. I, I agree I think there's a there's a number of things happening here so to me it's not obvious that this is applying to all um, occasions of rest. it seems that this proverb is very very much focusing on an an attitude, a, a worldview, or, or an overall approach to society. Um, I think that someone who rests uh, can, uh, you know, can benefit enormously from that rest, but someone who has their entire interaction with society built around the assumption that everything should be provided for them by someone else. Mm. Um that that in, second including case, including
1: instructions on what to do.
3: Yeah, exactly, and and even the basic things of you know preparing preparing food, um, uh, basic elements of survival. Th- that does seem to me to be uh, what the proverb is focusing in on, and I guess one of the costs of rest really is the the state of it's not quite helplessness, but it's certainly a little bit less self-sufficient. I actually think this is one of the values of the Sabbath um, mm. because it, it seems to me that it's, it, you know, the Sabbath commandment is framed in terms of you've got six days to sort yourself out, to get what you need to live. Take the seventh one off. Don't work. Don't be productive. Uh, not only you, but don't don't exploit other people to be productive on your behalf. Relax into the... Knowledge that you're you're not entirely self-sufficient. That's part of what Sabbath, I think, means in the context of dwelling on our relationship with God. Um, so one of the costs of rest is 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 very tangibly there. There is a sense in which some attitude or
1: self-sufficiency must be given up.
0: Mm.
1: Lachlan, mm. would you say the Sabbath is a time for strengthening relationships, ritual and ceremony, and cultural expression? Uh, Yeah, Uh, I like that you're bringing us back to that book and that quote because I I think it's a really, really good one. (laughs) (laughs) I want to say something really provocative because, and this is a terrible point in the podcast to do it, but I'm going to forge ahead anyway. So we've looked at this only from the perspective of the ant in the the person who is. Either wise or not wise, a, you know, hardworking or a sluggard, all the rest of it. But that verse seven, where it talks about they have no commander, no no lord, no ruler that tells them what to do. If we were to propagate a social system in which people were constantly instructed what to do and how to work, and when to be busy and productive, and that they must be busy and productive at these times, and then when these times are done, they don't have to be busy and productive at all, and must just consume and relax, and then be busy and productive again. Uh, according according to the times and the rules that we have set out, would we be... Doing people a favour, and would that system not create people who were not only incapable of enjoying work, they were also incapable of enjoying rest. Hmm.
0: What you described, Luke, in particular that last sentence, is the teaching profession. So um, that was that was well put. Uh, the The point is that in in um, there seems to be some self direction is recommended. Ooh in this proverb. And, and even when we say to people, you must keep the Sabbath this way and not that way. Um, we may be interfering in some sense with the sort of spirit behind this proverb. Hmm.
1: Uh, I think it's a very wise point.
0: Yeah. Um, I, I have two other comments on rest. Uh, these are not super relevant, but they're too good to leave out. Uh, one of them is, uh, from the book, three men in a boat. And, um, Jerome K. Jerome, the narrator of the book, is describing his frustration that he once lived with a man who used to lie on the couch and, and watch him as he worked. said it did him good to watch me working. And he felt so much better for it. And he said, I'm not like that. I, I can't sit still and see another man slaving and working. I want to get up. And... Superintend, and walk around with my hands in my pockets and tell him what to do. It's my energetic nature. I can't help it. <laughs> That's one comment. The other one is from The Importance of Being Earnest, which I um, reread the other day, to great enjoyment. And there's a point where um, uh, Ernest is being uh, interrogated by Lady Bracknell because he wants to marry her daughter. And she says, uh, Mr Worthing... Uh, do you smoke? And he says, well, yeah, yeah. yes, Lady Bracknell, I'm afraid I do smoke. She says, I'm pleased to hear it. There are far too many idle men on the, on the streets of London as it is. A man should have an occupation of some kind. <laughs> so, <laughs> oh, dear. <Yeah. laughs> we are out of time. We are. So we should wrap, wrap that up and go, go to our rest. <laughs> um, not our eternal rest, I hope.
2: But, uh, <laughs> At least not just yet. Although we can rest, enter into it from, now.
0: That's a fun idea. Um, yeah. Can, um, we should let our, our listeners enjoy some rest from, from podcasts. Until next week.